someone has a problem, you help them solve the problem, whatever it is. It could be boredom. It could be they need to unclog their sink, something like that. So if, if you have the searcher intent, if you have that visitor in mind, if you help them solve the problem, usually I think that is going to work out for the long term. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Before we get started, let's check in with the co-host. What's going on, Cody? Hey, what's going on, Justin? It's definitely been a difficult week. This past week was a lot of community support, helping our black community friends in the Fi space and just friends in general. There's been a lot going on with the coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter movement, but even though everything is crazy, I'm trying to keep a level head, trying to stay motivated, trying to stay committed to all the stuff I'm doing. But yeah, how about you, man? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, 2020 has just been a marathon. It's been a ton going on. And obviously, I think, you know, we're trying to do things that we can. Everybody's trying to do things to help. But we went out to a spot in New Hampshire with a camper van that was very remote. We had no cell phone service. And we just kind of spent the weekend outside with no access to internet, cell phone. So that was a really good, just kind of time to unplug. And now before we jump into the episode, let's take a moment for a quick word from our sponsor. Do you want to learn more about the future of prop tech? And for those like me who are not sure exactly what prop tech is, basically it's using technology to give you advantages as a real estate investor. PropTech Conference for a Cause will be hosted by Igloo Home on June 18th. As a global smart lock company, Igloo Home is building the future of smart access for homeowners and property managers worldwide. With a line of smart deadbolts, key boxes, and padlocks, you can be sure that there's a way to keep your property secure. Hear from the people and businesses that are shaping the future of real estate, property management, and urbanization. All ticket fees from this event will be donated to Team Rubicon in support of their COVID-19 relief efforts. The event will have things like expert panel discussions, expo, and networking. And topics will include things like how businesses are adapting, the acceleration of prop tech adoption, looking at growth opportunities, smart city innovations, and a ton of more other cool stuff. So if you want to check out this awesome event and you're a real estate investor looking to get more involved in the prop tech space, taking your real estate investments to the next level, you can sign up at thefyshow.com slash tech. That's thefyshow.com slash T-E-C-H tech. And today we're excited to bring on Doug Cunnington, who has made hundreds of thousands of dollars on his Amazon affiliate pages, as well as now coaching others on how to do the same thing. But he didn't start there. He's actually started out on a very traditional path as an engineer and found his way into it. Don't want to take away all of his thunder. Take it away, Doug. Gosh. It was way back. We'll go way back when I had like a full head of hair. People can't see me, but I'm quite bald. <laughs> and I think it was like 12 or 13 and I wanted to get a CD player. So I went to my dad. Hey, I really want to get a CD player. He's like, sure, but how are you going to pay for CDs? What are you going to do after you have a CD player? And I was like, I don't know. So I made a plan that night. I think it was a Friday evening. Made a plan that night to cut grass. So next morning, Saturday morning, I, I got the mower, started pushing it around the neighborhood. 
stopped at houses that had like tall grass and landed my first client at that point. And I was like, okay, well I need to have a plan. And I was stupid enough to like walk around with a mower. And I mean, people feel sorry for a kid pushing a mower around the neighborhood. So, um, yeah, I did that for maybe like six or eight years, something like that until I was midway through college, something like that. So if you did that for six to eight years, that must've meant that it was somewhat successful. And when you had a little bit of success like that, did you see like a domino effect where it started making you pay attention to other parts of finance or maybe even get more interested in entrepreneurship? You would think that. I mean, it was moderately successful. I made enough money to, you know, start paying for my college and, and buy my own cars and and those sort of things. So I was always making some money and had a lot of cash on hand. I didn't really find any interest in like entrepreneurship until like many years later by accident, pretty good in like math and science. So the path was like science, math, engineering. So I have an engineering degree and just kind of went down that corporate rabbit hole of engineering. So I I wasn't like, Hey, I'm going to start a business. This is awesome. Looking back, it would have been awesome to have some mentors that saw the potential and said, Hey, you know what? You could probably double down on this and do awesome. You know, it's like the late or mid nineties or so. So if I would have been working on like one thing for that long, I mean, how amazing would it be? But yeah, I just went to college, did my thing, got a job. And then it was a few years later when I, I started figuring out that I could make some money on my own. So it sounds like a lot of the early money lessons anyway, when you started this lawn care business, it was because you wanted to make transactions. It's because you wanted the money to go out and purchase something. When you started making quote unquote real money, as I'm guessing from that first engineering job, did you have a real goal of savings or what did that whole thing look like? No, no, it was, it was pretty, pretty <laughs> sloppy. I was making pretty good money. So out of school, I think I started at like 52,000, something like that. So pretty solid salary for like early 2000s, roughly. And I had enough money to, you know, pay the bills, like go out and drink with my friends and hang out, go on awesome vacations and just kind of be frivolous. I didn't have any specific savings goals. I was, I was smart enough to max out 401k. So I say I didn't do too much, but I was like, you know what? I, I think this is a good idea. So I was maxing those out from like day one. And I mean, I didn't need the additional money. So I was like, yep, I'm just going to make this a priority. So I did that for a few years and I wasn't really saving much on top of that because I was like, oh, the average savings rate is whatever. And like I said, I wasn't like running any huge amount of debt. I was just having a good time in my uh, 20s, you know. We've kind of laid the groundwork about how you got started thinking about finances and we've you've kind of gotten through college. You're making money. At what point in this story does something a little deeper come along, whether it is financial independence or just taking finances to the next level? So I think the the biggest, well, there's two main areas and my wife isn't listening right now, but if she was, my wife is a just wonderful saver. She saves money really well. And she was like, you know, what are you doing? Like with your money here, this is crazy. So at that point I started to clean things up a little bit and I didn't have a budget because I didn't need to, I guess. And once we started like tracking things a little more closely, like that area was in better shape. We're saving a little bit more. 
she was saving a ton, but I was catching up. The other inflection point is back in 2013, I was flipping through a podcast. I was trying to find a new one. I'm really into home brewing beer. And I, at the time, I was listening to all these beer brewing podcasts, just totally obsessed with that. Got a little burned out looking for something new. And I found the Smart Passive Income podcast. And that was a life changer. I listened to all the episodes multiple times and caught up with the whole back catalog and eventually found my way into some of the entrepreneurship ideas. I thought it was a total scam, make money online. But as I dug deeper and I followed Pat Flynn, Spencer Hawes over at Niche Pursuits, a few other folks like that, I was like, these guys are legit. They're actually doing good work. And I started you know, building Amazon affiliate sites pretty much maybe a month after finding Smart Passive Income. And like I said, it totally changed my life. So I want to dig in here for a second. I know that this in itself could be a five hour long conversation just talking about how to build niche affiliate sites for Amazon. But I remember when I first started with Amazon affiliates and I was just collecting the pennies. It was like not life changing money at all. And I can imagine or maybe I'm completely wrong on this. You have to be generating a pretty decent amount of traffic to start making actual money with these Amazon affiliate sites. So for some people who may have never heard of this or want to learn how to get started, could you just give us a quick basic overview of how you got started and then maybe some things that you'd change and how you can be successful? So when I started, like like many folks, the first few attempts were kind of terrible. They were misguided. I made a lot of mistakes along the way. So the first couple sites were a little bit of a dud, but as they say, you know, fail fast. So I was taking action pretty quickly and iterating pretty quickly as well. So for me, the first couple sites were not great, but within six months or so, I was making a few thousand dollars per month. And, you know, it starts really slow. Like you mentioned, Cody, I was making a few pennies here or there. And then it ramped up from, you know, $15 one month to 150 to 400. And then I think within six months, it was like a $6,000 month. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can quit my job. Like that's, you know, serious money. Even, you know, if you tell your friends early in your like website journey, they're like, how much time are you spending? And you're making $3. Like that doesn't make sense. But $6,000, like anyone can do something with that. So that really brought more confidence to what I was doing in the system. And you can like really see how powerful it is. Obviously, a ton of people buy on Amazon, and it's just a matter of like finding the right people to get to your site and that actually want to buy something. And then you're kind of just a sort of a stepping stone over to Amazon. They were already going to buy something anyway, and you're just helping them determine what product they want to buy specifically. So that that's kind of the the gist of the site. You're bringing value by curating all the products on Amazon, which, I mean, there are so many. A few months ago, I needed to buy an external hard drive. So I went over to Amazon, typed in external hard drive, and there's like 120,000 results or something. I don't know which one to get. And I really want a list of like five. I could probably pick between five, but on Amazon, there's just too many to choose from. So the trajectory can be really quick. And sometimes you don't have to have that much traffic. I was chatting with someone on YouTube the other day and they mentioned that they had a site that was getting roughly like 200 visitors a day, which is 
pretty good, but they were making way more money than you would expect from that generally small volume. With 200 visitors a day, you may you maybe would only make a few sales per day. And Amazon only pays like one to 10% commission. So you need to have like either higher price products or really high volume. So a little bit of a balance there. So digging in this a little bit deeper, let's say like a tangible example, like I'm finishing out this camper van I'm doing. And as I go through it, like I find these things on Amazon that I needed to buy. So you could have, I'm assuming like an instructional kind of thing, whereas they work through that instructional, they see products they could buy, or you've got like a top five things like your hard drive example. Which one of those is probably the best one to get started with? Or can both of them be really successful? Both can be really successful. And I I love your example, Justin, of the camper van, right? So you're doing a whole transformation. There are dozens of products you could buy. And you're adding a huge amount of value because you're saying, here's how you do this stuff. And you don't have to buy these products. But by the way, it makes it easier it's cheaper, it's faster, like all great things. So you're providing the how-to and great recommendations. And they could probably follow along and see exactly what you're doing. The other top five best of type listings, those, those are great. That's kind of my bread and butter. And that's usually what I stick to. The tougher part is if you're doing a how-to, that is a direct purchase path. So with the how-to, the the buying cycle may be longer. So if if I was interested in getting started and converting a camper as well, then I maybe would be doing research for maybe a couple months or you know really do my homework ahead of time. Where the best of type articles will attract people who go to Google and they say or they 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 will type in best hard drive for travelers. So, and that's what I would happen to be looking for because I was going on a long road trip and I needed something that could get, you know, run over by a car and, you know, throw around in my backpack and stuff. So the best of kind of articles, usually someone's going to make a purchase pretty quick. Like they've potentially done a little research before and they're probably going to buy fairly quickly. And that's important because on Amazon, the tracking cookie is 24 hours. So someone needs to make that purchase within 24 hours. So something that I've heard a ton and I didn't really internalize it until I started running these small businesses by myself is like it's 20% content, 80% marketing. And I'd be curious if you could weigh in on this a bit because I can imagine, you know, you type up this top five article or you type up this how-to article and it just is there on the internet. People need to know that it's there on the internet for you to start making money. So are you using SEO? Are you using different social media platforms? Could you talk about how you actually go and generate traffic for a new niche site? It's all SEO, and a, a lot of people do put more time into the the social media channels, but it's not as buyer intent focused. So when someone types something into Google, you have a pretty good idea like what they're looking for. Are they looking for a how-to article? Are they looking for a product to buy? Again, those best of type articles with those keywords, those are the ones that are going to convert way better. Yeah, you can get some conversions on how-to type articles, but typically they're less buyer-driven. The intent is just a little bit lower. And with social media, it's kind of a never-ending you know, machine that you have to keep feeding and you have to keep posting stuff. Even with some of the scheduling and automation that is available, you still have to be in there in the weeds where SEO can bring in traffic for years 
some of the sites that I have are you know, five, six years old. And it's not to say there's not maintenance and there's work to be done, but you know, from that standpoint, SEO traffic is superior. And so when we're talking about SEO for people who are maybe not as versed in it, you know, search engine optimization. So things that you're putting in there to help you rank or come up when someone searches, I know that's a huge topic, but is there any kind of like, you must do these three things or whatever it may be for people who are getting started with that? Yeah, it's a huge, huge topic. I think the most important thing is you need to find keywords. Those are, we say keywords, but really they're phrases, they're search phrases. So I mentioned a few times someone goes over to Google and they type something in. That is the search phrase. That's the keyword. It's referred to as keywords in SEO. So you have to make sure you're not publishing content that no one's searching for. If no one's searching for the topic that you're publishing, then no one's going to find it. And it's been said many times, but I'll just repeat it here. If you build it, they're not just going to come, especially online, like <laughs> maybe 10 years ago, but no one really cares about your blog. No one cares about what you're doing unless you can help the searcher. So with that in mind, you just got to make sure people are searching for something. You don't want to be the very first one in the market because no one's searching for it. You have to educate everyone. You kind of want to, you want to be in an established market. And so that that's one thing. And the other is, you know, just write for the actual visitor to your site. When you get deep into SEO, sometimes people make weird decisions just based on SEO and they kind of forget at the end of the day, if you publish something, you wanted to help someone by solving a problem. So if you have that in mind, whether it's like me choosing a hard drive for traveling or like building out a camper van, you know, you're helping someone solve their problem. And other than that, there's a lot of other guides and stuff on on YouTube or blogs or whatever on SEO. But those are sort of the main things that maybe people overlook. So I want to hop back to your story a little bit. You mentioned that six months in, is that correct? You were making $6,000, Doug? That's right. All right. So that's pretty sweet. And you still have this corporate job at this time. Could you walk us through those next couple of years? Because I know myself, I'd say, see ya to that corporate job if I'm bringing in $6,000 from this fun side hustle that you're discovering online? So funny thing that happens with SEO and the Google algorithm, sometimes Google changes their algorithm and you were getting a lot of traffic and then all of a sudden you're getting very little traffic. So that happened to me the month after I hit that $6,000 month because I was, I was thinking exactly what you said, Cody. I was like, this is uh, pretty close to full-time income. I feel really good about this. And then the next month it dropped dramatically. I think it was, it dropped by like 80%. And I didn't know quite what to do, but I was like, okay, this is a learning experience. I will keep going. So for another, I would say year and a half or so, I started up a couple other sites and they didn't grow as quick. Things were shifting just a bit, but I kept persevering and, and pushing forward. And eventually, I think it was about a year and a half later, I had another site, you know, sort of pick up. And at, at that point, I had a better handle on the SEO side of it. And during that particular period of time, there were a lot of people I mentioned, Spencer Hawes, kind of an influential niche site and affiliate marketer. He experienced some of these ups and downs as well. So we kind of shifted around that 2014, 2015 period to 
what they call white hat. It's more of a sort of a pure way to get traffic, I guess. So you're working within the guidelines of Google Webmaster guidelines to be redundant. So we kind of shifted what we were doing. And it, at that point, I was still you know, going up the, the corporate ladder. And I didn't love my job. I was an IT project manager, which is a pretty good gig. I was doing consulting, make good money. I didn't have to travel much. I actually worked from home for many, many years, which gave me free time because I wasn't commuting. And I was able to just have two laptops running at the same time. And I would work on both things like throughout the day. So salary wise, it was fantastic because I was sort of double dipping in, in a lot of ways. And over some time, I eventually, I uh, was like, this is great. I'm glad I got this side hustle stuff going on. And in 2015, I got laid off. So 2013 is when I found smart passive income, was dabbling for a couple years, made some mistakes, had some success, got laid off in 2015. And I was like, now's my chance to give this a shot, try to take it full time. And at that point, I didn't have like replacement income. I was making maybe a couple thousand bucks a month and didn't really know where to focus. So I'll pause here to make sure we're still on track. Yeah, you're totally on track. And I mean, this story is is a very interesting one because I wasn't expecting the the layoff part, I was honestly just expecting the, I got so successful that there was no point in me going to my day job anymore. But you did talk about how, you know, these next sites weren't as successful. So I'm just kind of curious, like how that portfolio grew, like how many sites did you run? Do you run? How do you decide on like the variations that you're trying to do? Like what is so different? Why did you need to start multiple sites? Those sort of questions. So after that first site had all those issues, I was like, okay, I want to try to repurpose the content because that content over there was still good. So I was starting some sites still in the same niche. And then I kind of wanted to spread risk a little bit. So diversify, even though it was all the same revenue channels, all the same traffic channels. So it was a little diversification. Although over time, I realized I'm much better off if I just focus on one thing instead of trying to do too many things, even if it's all websites. So at the height, I think maybe I had six sites and really I think four is better. And as I've progressed through my internet marketing career and met more people, I see people have one or two sites that take off and then they drop everything else because they realize the ROI is much higher if they just focus on the one thing. So I eventually, you know, taper down and just ignore other sites that are still out there and they're just hanging out, maybe making a little money, but they're largely neglected. And typically I'm just focusing on, you know, the bigger ones that have grown and and done well over time. And I, I did a similar thing, like right after I got laid off, I ended up trying a couple different service based businesses and just a couple other things like a course and I, I was continuing with the affiliate marketing. So again, I spread myself a little thin, but it was truly like a diversified situation. Now, the interesting thing is like one of those service-based businesses were very successful. I was sort of positioned in a pretty good spot, but I realized, why well, don't want to deal with clients? Like I don't want to like see this to success. So I was on track for six figures back in 2015, 2016 or so. And if it was successful, the end game would have been 
I have a team of people. I'm at the top of an org chart, which is exactly the position that I had before. So I could build a team. I'm a project manager. I can run stuff, but I didn't really want to. And to this day, I have like two VAs and I want to have a lean team overall. I don't want to have a bunch of people waiting for me to tell them what to do. That was actually exactly what I wanted to dive into next. And not everyone obviously listening to this might be interested in Amazon affiliate marketing, but we have a ton of people who make money online in some capacity or another. And as someone who's so busy like yourself, you're running six sites at one point, you're starting an online course, you're doing these service-based businesses. How do you keep everything straight? I know you just mentioned the two VAs. Could you dig into that? What systems you have set up, maybe some software, and then maybe how you found your VAs and how other people can make their lives easier by cutting down on the work that they have to do themselves? So usually people make things complicated, like right up front. So I usually try to not make things too complicated. Typically, I'm using uh, spreadsheets for any sort of project management. It's really great, especially if you're pulling in freelancers for ad hoc assignments, whatever they may be, because you don't have to train them. Everyone kind of understands how to use Google Sheets and they have a Google account and you don't have to worry about onboarding as much. I have used a lot of different project management tools that are more complicated. Again, there's more training, stuff like that. And I find Trello is sort of like pretty easy to use. That's what I'm using these days. And you guys use that too? Yep. And it's great for just content management and easy tracking. I use Zapier and it, you know, it links up to many different things. So it's pretty easy to automate this and that and make sure anything in your process flow is sitting in the inbox of whoever needs to take care of it next. So, you know, keep things simple. You can make them complicated later. You can always make them more complicated later. So just keep them simple up front. Use the simplest software that you possibly can. And again, you can upgrade or go to something more sophisticated if you need to. But sometimes people try and solve a problem they don't have yet. As far as my VAs, I typically go to Upwork. And I've hired dozens of writers from Upwork for the content on the sites. I don't write any of it myself anymore. And the assistants that I have, I was basically trying to find an, an executive assistant and you know, put a job listing out, which that's another skill that I got from my corporate gig. There was a lot of stuff I didn't like about working that job, but I mean, I learned a lot in project management and managing people and then onboarding folks. So I can write roles and responsibilities really well. People like to see that over on Upwork because a lot of the job listings are just terrible. They're like two lines. People don't know what they want and expectations are way off at that point. So if they see an actual professional type listing, you're probably going to get a higher quality person. So I just interview a couple people, you know, see if we have the right sort of communication. If it's something like a video editor, like I do a lot of YouTube videos, so I have a video editor and I hired four people to do a trial. Highly encourage people to do trials. You want to pay them. You know, you want to make sure you're paying people for the work that they do. But at that point, you don't need to interview them because you see the work that they're turning in. And that is, I mean, people can fake their way through an interview that could be really charismatic. Some people, they may be able to do great work for you, but they get nervous. They freak out if they do a video interview, for example, and 
they just won't deliver. So if you could do trial assignments, it's a, it's a great way to, to vet people. And usually the cost is going to be fairly inexpensive versus like hiring someone that doesn't work out. So you've got these side businesses humming along. You've got what you want as far as a team. You're not a huge team. You've got a lean operation. It sounds like you've got things pretty well figured out. But I'm just kind of curious, since I'm sure they're bringing in a nice income every month, I'm sure you've been still plugging away at that savings and you're building that nest egg. If you've got any thoughts about your future with it, and if you would just want to sell it to someone else who wants to collect those royalties and just walk away and not have to deal with any of it. Yeah, good question. I I have over time sold a couple of sites and let's see, I've sold a few. So I've sold about three sites, a couple early on under 20,000, and then I've sold a couple for over six figures, one over 200,000. So pretty good chunk of change. Typically the valuations on those are 25 times the monthly profit, roughly 25 to 35 or so. So that's like two to three years of profit you get upfront. So that's the huge value of selling such a site. Sometimes you get bored with them. I actually got bored with, with one of them and I knew an owner, a better owner, someone excited would probably be able to take it to places where I just wasn't willing to, again, because I got other stuff going on and yeah, I just don't have the drive to keep pushing. So as far as saving, as I mentioned, my wife was a really good saver and I was making good money with my consulting gig and the side income. And then eventually once I started working for myself, I made way more than I possibly could if I stayed at the corporate job for the rest of my career. There's like no way that you can make the same money by, you know, waiting in line to get promoted and dealing with all the politics and and all that stuff. So, a couple of things with that. I think at some point I may reach that point, but I kind of enjoy the work that I'm doing and I have blog, YouTube, and a podcast where I talk about affiliate marketing. So, it's really good for me to have you know, boots on the ground, in the trenches, actually doing stuff. I know a lot of folks end up teaching and or selling products and they had, you know, a one hit wonder. They don't know what they're talking about anymore and they're not implementing anything and they're just talking about the thing that worked in, you know, 2015. So I think it's really important for me to, you know, stay active so I know what's going on and it provides me, you know, something to do. I mean, I probably won't go back to a corporate job. If it's the right opportunity, then maybe, but I really like working for myself. I like the freedom. We just moved to a new home and I took uh, two weeks off and I don't have to check with anyone. I can kind of do whatever I need to do. Last year, I took like three months off like traveling and doing some other stuff. So really enjoy the freedom with that. But I also like a lot of people who end up, you know, hitting FI, we're, uh, we're busy bodies. We like to set a goal, usually some long-term thing and we keep working at it. So I enjoy producing the content. I enjoy doing the podcast. I like writing. So all these things are keeping me busy anyway. And the, the website's make it easier to talk about those topics. So maybe I'll sell them someday. Maybe not. I think it's awesome that you're staying relevant and keeping the content fresh. Because if you're someone like you said that was successful 10 years ago, and then you're still teaching people nowadays, that's not probably the person you want teaching you. 
But I know you've been crushing it with your course lately. And like you mentioned, you have the podcast, you got the blog, you got the YouTube channel, teaching other people about this type of affiliate marketing. When did all that start? And how has it been for you since then? So back actually in 2013. So at the beginning, I thought to myself, well, like I kind of maybe want to start a blog and teach people just like the folks that I'm learning from. It's kind of a cycle that you'll see. A lot of people will follow along. Hey, I want to start a blog too. So I did that. And right at the very beginning, I decided if I'm going to start a blog, I don't want it to be just a charity. I want to sell something. So right off the bat, I started an email list, pushed out like an ebook. Ebooks were a little more popular back then, but it was basically the course, the first iteration of the course that I have. Again, that was like November of 2013. I think I sold 10 of them for $88, something like that. And it was enough for me to validate the idea. People were interested. They liked the project management approach in general. And I mean, let's face it, the make money online industry is really shady. So I tried to bring my professionalism to the table and and make sure people can trust me a little bit more. Again, the project management is huge. A lot of folks, they have like extra income and they're in IT, they're project managers, they're software people. So those are kind of the folks that ended up gravitating towards me just because of my background. So from the beginning, I was selling something. And then as time went on, as I sort of stumbled and was trying to find my footing, I pulled the course. I wasn't selling it for a little while. But then in 2016, as things were picking up again, I had a fresh take. I knew I could revamp the entire course, keep the framework generally the same, but really upgrade all the ideas that I had, all the tools that I was using, and then kind of battle test all the templates. So the course is filled with templates and a lot of those sort of systems that that I used and not just used, but tested and then had other students kind of go through. So I would have like real life users out there that could give me feedback. Hey, this isn't clear. Can you improve this template? Something like that. So over time, I, I have improved the the course in general. I've improved the marketing. So it's a better you know market and product fit, getting the right students in there that can be successful. So, and it's been fantastic. I I think I mentioned it when I was chatting with you before, Cody, that I've made over six figures over the last three years just on, on the course. And I also want to point out, I've made more than that from the affiliate marketing. A lot of folks are often like, oh, you make more from your course than you do from actually doing the work. So not the case for me. I actually do make more as a practitioner versus a teacher. In this course setup, I'm thinking back to what you said earlier, where one of your first successful websites, like it was humming along and then all of a sudden Google changed its algorithm. And if you're rolling out these courses, do you ever have this fear that like Google makes this huge algorithm change and all of a sudden your course is maybe not completely invalid, but it is greatly changed. And now all of a sudden you have to rush and try to, you know, make up that, pull some things down temporarily, maybe like how would you handle a situation like that? So that literally describes the first iteration of the course where it was kind of a thing that was working for a little while and then it stopped working. So after I learned that lesson, I realized that how can I make this evergreen? How can I make sure I don't have to go and update the course every time there's a algorithm update? It used to be way less frequent. It used to be, you know, every year 
every six months, something like that. Now there's algorithm updates coming out every month, all the time. And I wrote the course and, and shot the videos so that I wouldn't have to update as many things. So I pulled out anything that wasn't, at least at the time, and it's held up for almost four years at this point, where it's conservative, they're principles that work and it has the visitor in mind. So back to the point that I mentioned before, if you're creating content, whether it's a podcast or YouTube or a blog post or an affiliate site, someone has a problem, you help them solve the problem, whatever it is. It could be boredom. It could be they need to unclog their sink, something like that. So if if you have the searcher intent, if you have that visitor in mind, if you help them solve the problem, Usually, I think that is going to work out for the long term. And I tried to make sure I didn't put any, you know, risky sort of ideas or strategies in the course after I figured out that I shouldn't do that. So we've been talking a lot about your journey, and it seems like all of this passion around money and side hustling stemmed from entrepreneurship back when you found SPI in 2013. But now I know you're living out in Colorado. You go to the Triple M, Mr. Money Mustache headquarters all the time. You're friends with Pete. How did that whole introduction to the FI movement actually happen? Really slowly. I, I think once my wife and I realized we had too much cash on hand. So this was back when we had our corporate jobs and we were just not spending enough and we didn't have a mechanism to save and we didn't know what to do. I think she started reading some more books. I'm pretty sure she sent the famous blog post, Deceptively Simple Math Behind Sh- Shockingly Simple Math. <laughs> yes. So I think she sent that and I was like, oh, that sounds good. Great. We'll sort of take that approach. So I like, you know, stopped paying my other advisor who probably wasn't guiding me that well and realized, hey, we're just going to manage this ourselves. At the same time, I also realized, hey, I don't want to wait until I'm whatever, 55, 59 and a half to touch any of this money that I'm socking away. We need to put this somewhere else. So we started, you know, figuring that up. And then we used to live in Atlanta. So we moved from Atlanta out west. We ended up in Bozeman, Montana for a little while. And then just through serendipity, my wife ended up getting a job offer in the Boulder area. And turns out I love this area. I worked at the Rocky Mountain National Park in college back in the early 2000s. So I almost moved out here a couple times already. So I was like, sure, we may as well check it out. Close to the mountains, pretty cool. And I knew, I kind of knew, you know, Pete was in the Longmont area. Funny thing, we lived here for about six months before I joined HQ. So Longmont's a fairly small town, but I just work at home and I wasn't paying attention. And all of a sudden I was like, ah, oh, you know what? I want to get out of the house. I'll see what the best co-working spaces are. And then I was talking to Pete a couple of days later and I was like, this is great. I'll be here. And yeah, it's an awesome community. Everyone's so cool. It's like our kind of people and they understand the side hustling. They enjoy, you know, nerding out about money like we do. So like Cody said, you know, we spent a lot of time covering that business side of things, but now you're getting into kind of when you're discovering financial independence. And I know you mentioned that you know, you got rid of a financial advisor, you did some moves. Do you think you really changed like how you thought about money after discovering the financial independence movement? Or was it just kind of these tactical things to get your investments in order so that you could retire someday? I think it has been a really gradual sort of shift because 
I was definitely like in the corporate world and all my friends had these management consulting jobs too. And I worked really hard to get promoted and made manager and like, you know, things are good at that point, great benefits and all that. And as I was launching websites and learning how to make money on my own, I slowly shifted to the entrepreneurship mindset and started saving a lot of money as well. And we were, you know, throwing it into index funds and just, you know, doing our thing. And as time went on, I I realized entrepreneurs or, you know, side hustle kind of folks have the same interest and we're into the same stuff as the FI community. We would just want freedom with our time one way or another. We want to work on the stuff we want to work on, things we're passionate about. So I think it's sort of a blend and just very gradually over the past six years, I like shifted from, you know, corporate worker bee to I can do my own thing. And the big thing, and I didn't mention this to you guys before, I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but uh, I mean, my wife is super risk averse. So like, even if we, you know, hit, hit our number, it's like, well, we should probably stick with it. And with the events, you know, recently now's not a super great time to retire and start pulling money out or anything like that. But, you know, we're, we're just continuing to do our thing. We quote retired. I would probably be doing pretty close to what I'm doing now. I'm doing pretty short work weeks overall. And I work on the stuff that I want to work on. I got to say, I love what you said about time freedom there, Doug, because I'm so on board with that entrepreneurs, freelancers, side hustlers, five people, everyone wants the same thing. It's just freedom with their time. And I've also had an amazing time spending today recording this episode with you. You shared so many cool nuggets and a lot of people might be hearing about Amazon affiliate marketing for the first time. For people who want to learn more about Amazon affiliate marketing and for people who want to follow along with you, maybe connect with you, hear your story, could you point us towards some resources where they can get connected? Yeah, I have some awesome resources, basically a full sort of guide and framework to get started with Amazon affiliate marketing, especially if you've never touched any of this stuff before. So you can head over to my blog, nichesiteproject.com slash Fyshow, and you'll sign up for my email list. You can unsubscribe if you want after you get all the stuff, but I send you some helpful stuff and point you in the right direction. It'll point you towards a blog post and YouTube videos and some podcasts that are relevant. And I I will mention podcasts are great. Obviously, you're listening to this right now. People love the success stories that I have. Um, I've interviewed a lot of people who they started from zero and I've done many interviews with them so you can track them along. They hit their first $100 and a thousand, then they quit their job, that sort of thing. So I would check out those resources out there. And like I said, all the templates I use, all the systems, I give all that stuff away for free via the email list. Awesome, Doug. Well, hopefully our listeners will go out there and check that out and see some big improvements for themselves and maybe find a new way that they can earn some money on the side. But one thing we want to ask all of our guests is for those who are on the path to financial independence, what's like one tangible tip that you would give them? So I'm going to cheat and give kind of a combo. It's always important to understand your expenses. And I know if, if you're just getting started and you haven't gotten a handle on that, it seems like daunting to track everything. 
but it's so important to just understand where that money is going. And I was talking to uh, Mindy Jensen. I interviewed her a few weeks back and she said that they had like a, a notebook, a log book that they wrote down all their expenditures while they were trying to figure out their expenses. And I think there's something really important about like writing something down by hand, tangible. I know there's apps that can do it. I know there are cooler ways to do it, but writing it down, there's some kind of connection that happens in my brain anyway. So if you can get a notebook and just track those expenses, that's huge. And then once you have a handle on your expenses, I would say start side hustles, right? I know people have skills. You can use those skills from your day job. You could figure out how to parlay that into making money for yourself without anyone in the middle of you and the customer or the client or whatever. So figure out how to freelance, side hustle, do something. It doesn't have to be Amazon affiliate marketing. It could be you know photography or something completely different. But if you could figure out how to make money on your own, those first couple dollars, super important because then you realize, well, I could do this again and again. Awesome. Definitely love those tips, Doug. It's fine that you cheated and kind of gave us the combo there, but you're almost out of here. And I have one more question for you. And this is the wild card question where I'm not prepared. Justin's not prepared. So Doug, you're definitely not prepared, but are you ready? Oh yeah. All right. So you've helped dozens, probably hundreds of people over these past, what now, seven years, 2013 to 2020, when you started creating content, helping other people become successful affiliate marketers. And I'm sure you've seen some stuff. I want to hear about the craziest niche site that you saw someone create. I'm talking someone creating a, maybe an adult toy <laughs> type of business, or they're creating something just so out there and so weird. And you're like, wow, I can't believe they actually did this and it's successful. Well, I have seen the sex toy niche out there. And if you think about it, right, the best way to do reviews on products is to order all those products and test them out yourself. Now, I haven't <laughs> seen that specifically, but I would say there's probably a pretty big niche out there to figure out. Because I mean, if you're on Amazon and you're thinking, hey, which one of these adult products should I get? Is this the right size, for example, whatever? Like, at least you can go to a review. I have seen some other sites that were just totally obscure topics that you wouldn't expect. So something like a, an antique corn husker. I, I've heard about those, which <laughs> don't get into that niche. I mean, no one's buying them. Like, you can't get them on Amazon. But yeah, there's some just obscure stuff out there. But yeah, I mean... Cody, I'll give you the sex toy niche if you want to check it out. I can help you get it started. <laughs> I'm all set. I really appreciate it though, Doug. I'm sure that if I had some coaching from you, I could make it into a successful side hustle. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think you could do it. Uh, well, Doug, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today and walking us through your story and giving people this new avenue that maybe they can think about or at least go out there and research more about and learn this tool of affiliate links and these Amazon affiliate links specifically. And we can't wait to hear some of the success stories from the listeners who go out there and sign up for your email list and work through some of that free course material you have. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a pleasure and an honor. So Doug gave us his background. He gave us how he started out setting up these Amazon affiliate pages and then how he's kind of scaled that business and his mentality as a manager. So it was really cool to see the start to finish the whole encompassing story. What'd you think about the episode, Cody? Yeah, I really liked and enjoyed this episode. I think it's kind of in the same realm and the same niche that we're in. But I think that Doug brings a whole different angle to it. Like 
most of my online life has been building a brand or like building something around myself or, you know, helping people and having like my face on it. But Doug is kind of behind the scenes building these sites where he's like, hey, here are the top five vacuum cleaners for your garage. Or, hey, here are the best three rakes for people who live in Minnesota. (laughs) Obviously, these are a little bit ridiculous examples, but he just showed us that like if you start to understand SEO, search engine optimization, that you can start to build these sites that generate a ton of organic traffic from Google. You don't have to be posting on Instagram. You don't have to you know, build an audience or be an influencer. Any of these things that a lot of people think you need to be successful online, if you start to understand these fundamental concepts and things that algorithms like Google and Bing and Yahoo and Pinterest, whatever those search engines might be are looking for, you can start to build a really successful and profitable niche site. One thing that I noticed from the episode was that there doesn't have to be a loser in this situation. So the person who's running this website can make a nice income off the affiliate links. But then the person who's actually searching gets a service as well because it makes it more efficient for them. Because as he said, you know, you go to Amazon, you're looking for a hard drive. There's just so many options you don't know what to pick from. So, of course, there could be people out there who are putting together a list and they don't really care about which product is done well or helping the customer. But I think the ones that are actually successful are people who are giving legitimate reviews, who are being thorough, who are helping the customer. And in that situation, both people win. It's kind of unfortunate that some of the different like multi-level marketing and different things like that have giving people a bad taste in their mouth anytime they think about, oh, use this referral code or, oh, hey, use this link, when in reality, no one loses in that situation. So I thought that was kind of a, an interesting thing. I think some people are quick to judge anything that's like, hey, let me send you to something when it doesn't mean that they're giving you information they wouldn't do anyway. It's just kind of a way for there to be a win-win. I also liked how Doug was humble enough to admit when he either made a mistake or he created a site that he wasn't that passionate about. I remember he was saying he sold one of his sites and he did sell it for quite a handsome sum of money. But he was like, you know what? I know that if I sell this to someone else, they can do a much better job at managing this than me. They can start to make more money than I can. So he's like, I'm going to stick with these three or four sites that I'm actually passionate about, that I like and understand the content. Even though at this point, he's actually hiring out the writing because he's been doing the writing for the past seven years since he started in 2013. But he is just staying in the niches that he really knows and that he really enjoys. And yes, he has ventured out and tried other things and kind of like what we do with diversifying our, whether it's our income streams or our investment vehicles, he's figuring out what works for him and what's going to give him the best results in the long run. And now it's time for the call to action. For the call to action this week, Cody, just want to recommend people go over and get some free resources so they can learn more about this subject and maybe even take it for a spin if they want to. And they can get that over at nichesiteproject.com slash show. That's nichesiteproject.com slash show. And those are some free resources there. And if you can't remember the URL, you can go to our show notes and grab those. And for those of you who would like to access the show notes and see a detailed description of everything we talked about, all the links, the summary, everything we talked about in this episode today, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash Doug. That's thefyshow.com slash D-O-U-G, Doug. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.